Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. I want to suggest this morning a social experiment, a thought experiment. Track with me on this. Imagine a YouTuber, and he has this large audience on YouTube, but he has been evicted from his house. And let's just imagine in that scenario two different videos that this person could post. Video one says this, tomorrow I'm going to wake up and it's rise and grind. I'm going to put in the set sweat equity until all of my dreams come true. And then he closes out the video with uh, panic at the discos, high hopes, and he plays it in the background, and the camera comes out of focus, and it's just this highly emotional positivism, right? Video number two. person humbly stands in front of the camera and says, right now is hard, but I know that the Lord has a purpose, and at the end, I will be raised up with Christ. After all, I am to humble myself under God's mighty hand so that he might exalt me at the proper time. Which of those two videos do you think would garner more likes and a wider audience? Of course, it's positivism. It has a a broader appeal. It appeals to people of all religious backgrounds and faiths, right? It has a broader, kind of more uh, vanilla appeal than that of humble faith. But there's something else here, isn't there? There's something else underneath the surface that we want to draw out this morning. There's something about bold expressions of faith in Jesus Christ that makes us squirm, It makes us just uncomfortable. I remember being at a basketball game, and uh, it was an NBA game, and they were playing some music before, and uh, Drake had just put out this song called God's Plan. Lots of Drake fans in the audience here today, right? But Drake, the rapper, is putting out a a, a notion of spiritual uh, spirituality, right? God's plan, he says. God's plan. It's all part of God's plan. Culturally speaking, using religion as a bolster to your positivism is not the problem. There are artists like Drake and others who kind of appeal to this vague spirituality, but speaking boldly about your trust that Christ will exalt you is viewed as arrogance. And I just want to highlight this, that our culture will encourage self-exaltation But as soon as it verges upon trust in God's exaltation, it becomes nonsense. See, today we have the story of two lineages. We have that of Jacob and that of Esau. And as we really dig into Jacob's lineage in chapter 37, as Brian has read for us, we'll find this interesting dynamic. And what's going to happen is that God's chosen one, Joseph, despite his fidelity to his father and to God's plan, will be rejected by his own brothers. See, here's our big idea. See, God's promise of exaltation leads to human rejection. 
God's promise of exaltation to you and to us and to the likes of Joseph and ultimately to Christ himself leads to human rejection. We see this promise to us as believers in places like John 16 or John 15 where where Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, if they've rejected you, they will reject me also. A servant is not greater than his master. The dynamic that we find in our passage here this morning is that as Joseph is continually faithful in interpreting the dreams and in faithfulness to his own father, he finds himself at odds with his brothers. And ultimately what we'll see this morning is that Jesus himself, in the midst of his utter faithfulness to God the Father, is rejected. And I want to see this in two phases. First, we're going to examine the lineage of Esau in chapter 36. We're just going to find out that it's flat. And what we mean by that is nobody's really exalted above another. There's just kind of this uh, statement of of all of Esau's sons. And we'll kind of dig into that a little bit. But uh, then when we turn to chapter 37, we're going to see that Jacob's lineage, in kind of antithesis to Esau's lineage, has a, a favorite It has someone that's kind of exalted above the others, and we want to kind of highlight that and just dig into that this morning. So I'm going to invite you into Genesis 36 and 37, and before we start into this, I just want to ask uh, that we bow one more time in prayer and ask God to use our time. Lord, we plead with you this morning in the midst of a a pressure-filled society that we live in in the midst of a society that has no tolerance for claims of faith in you that would bring about exaltation of us. Fill our hearts with promise. Fill our minds with the things that you speak of yourself. Let us behold glory this morning in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's dig into our first point. Esau's lineage is flat, and we're going to see this in Genesis 36. See, Genesis 36 records for us uh, kind of the sons of Esau, and it probably covers uh, like hundreds of years here in chapter 36. Most likely what happened is Moses has gone out and he's grabbed some other document of the history of the Edomites and kind of inserted it here. Uh, This is a noteworthy chapter, though, because uh, Genesis has given us multiple lineages of God's, like, non-chosen members, if that makes any sense. If you remember Cain, Cain's the guy who killed his brother, and and his lineage included the likes of of Lamech and and others that were just increasingly kind of secular and sinful. And we saw that in Genesis chapter 4. If we were to fast forward to Genesis 25, there was Ishmael, who wasn't the chosen son, I Isaac. He was the kind of half-breed son of Abraham through Hagar. And so Genesis 25 records for us the lineage of Ishmael. But here, God is going to kind of chase down all of the details of those who called Esau their, their dad or their grandfather or their patriarch. And Moses is going to record this for us by answering a number of basic questions. And so I want to just give you this format at the front end. In verses 1 through 4, uh, we're going to ask the question, who did Esau Mary. All right. Who did Esau marry? And there's as many as three or four different options there in verses one through four. We'll talk about that. And then secondly, in verses six through eight, where did they live? Right. And we'll talk about how they no longer lived in Canaan, but lived somewhere else. Verses nine through 14, we're going to see who were their kids and their grandkids. And then in verses 15 through 43, what was this nation structured like? 
And so basically, Moses is kind of giving us this kind of overarching view of Edom or the descendants of Esau. So let's look at verses 1 through 4 of Genesis 36. These are the generations of Esau, that is Edom. Esau took his wives from the Canaanites, Ada, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, Aholabama, uh, the daughter of Anna, the daughter of Zibion, the Hivite, and Basemath, Ishmael's daughter, the sister of Nebioth. And Ada bore to Esau Eliphaz, Basemath bore Reuel, and Aholabama bore Jeush, Jalem, and Korah. These are the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. You have no, many, no idea of how many times I practiced that before today. But first, it's noteworthy that in verse 1, Moses calls Esau Edom because he's highlighting that Esau would eventually become a nation called Edom. Edom is this uh, word that means red. And if we were to kind of go back, uh, Genesis 25 acknowledged that 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 got its name from the redness of the stew that Esau traded his inheritance for. It also could be a reference to the the red hair that covered his body, uh, because he was a a redhead, apparently. But historically speaking, Israel and Edom didn't like each other. Uh, If you know the history of the nation of Edom, it's in Numbers chapter 20 that the Israelites are kind of wandering through the wilderness, and they come up upon the borders of Edom. And Moses and Aaron request the, the leaders of Edom, the king of Edom, if they can kind of pass through. And what happens is, after they've made two different requests... Uh, the king of Edom denies them access and actually comes out and fights against them. It's later on, if we read in Psalm 137, at the destruction of Babylon, when, or the destruction of Jerusalem as Assyrians kind of move in upon the city, uh, Psalm 137 records that it was the descendants of Esau that stood and kind of cheered on the Babylonians as they destroyed Jerusalem. There's just a particular bitterness about this. And because of this, the prophets, uh, specifically the minor prophets, spoke a lot about the nation of Edom, and most notably in Amos chapter 1, verse 11. Therefore, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. But listen to this, because he pursued his brother, right? The prophets see Edom as related to Israel because he pursued his brother with the sword and cast off all pity and his anger tore perpetually and he kept his wrath forever. So what Moses is doing for us in chapter 36 as he's writing to this audience of of Israelites that are wandering the desert, Genesis and Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy is written for this audience. He's recording for us where did these Edomites come from? Where are they? What what person did they descend from and, and how should we understand them? There's kind of an appeal to view them as brothers because they are the brothers of Esau. And what we see then in, in verse 1, we see, see it transitions into verse 2, and we see that uh, Moses records the wives of Esau. First, there's Asa and Aholabama. Remember Genesis 26 closed uh, by telling us about Esau's wives. In chapter 26, before Isaac gave the blessing to Jacob, the chapter closes out with, with Esau taking wives from among the Hittites. And we remember that that was particularly burdensome to Isaac and Rebekah. 
Rebecca is just weary of these Canaanite or Hittite women. Uh, now, the names in Genesis 26 don't quite match up particularly well with Genesis 36, and this can mean a couple different things. One, uh, that, that Esau actually had more wives, some of which aren't recorded here in Genesis 36, or that these wives had nicknames or various names, okay? But still, we should trust that the accounts are right. Regardless, the passage seems to be emphasizing the nationalities of Esau's wives. These are Hittite women. Uh, They come from the Canaanites. And we remember that when Isaac uh, blessed Jacob, he asked Jacob to go back to his homeland, Paddan Aram, to receive his wife and not to marry those women of the Canaanites. Well, it's after that happens in Genesis 28 that Esau responds. And so he takes an additional wife that we see recorded in verse 3, a wife of the descendants of Ishmael, and her name is Basemath. That's a great name for anybody looking for baby names right there, right? Base math. Remember, after Isaac gave, God, or gave God's blessing to Jacob and sent him to Pat and Aram, Esau then took a wife from Ishmael's family. Um, and so all three of these wives are not from uh, the, the Pat and Aram line. They're not from Abraham's family, so to speak. They're uh, just nationals that live around them. So, verses 4 and 5 progress, and it starts to record a little bit of what their lineage is. Each uh, wife's firstborn son is listed. And so, Ada gives birth to Eliphaz. Uh, Basemath bore Reuel. Ohalabama bore Jeus, Jalem, and Korah. Uh, oddly enough, that name Eliphaz, the Temanite, comes up later in the book of Job. We might think, and a lot of interpreters think, that this is the same guy. Eliphaz, the Temanite, is the same guy giving really bad counsel to Job in the book of Job, in Job chapter 4, and, and, there, and forward from there. Uh, Oholabama had these three sons. Why, why three names under Oholabama? Well, historically, Esau and the Edomites uh, clans would drive out the Horites or the Hivites. And as Oholabama is recorded to be of this kind of lineage, what's really happening here is probably Esau's moving into the territory, driving out the people, and taking this woman as his wife, kind of as, yeah, um, as he's kind of moved in. And so when verse 20 gives us the sons of Seir, uh, those who were likely the generation preceding Esau that he eventually dispossessed, here he, he's marrying one of these Horites, these Hivites, and he's taking them into his house and making a family with them. Well, verses 6 through 8 trans- transition a little bit. And uh, they're, they're asking the question, where did they live? Well, look at verses 6 through 8. Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household, his livestock, all the beasts, and all the property that he had acquired in the land of Canaan. And he went into a land away from his brother Jacob. For their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. Uh, The land of their sojournings could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau settled in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. See, Esau couldn't dwell in the same land as Jacob in the land of Canaan. And so Jacob and Esau possessed too much stuff. And being that there was no uh, like storage units or anything else, right, they had to move to a different land. So uh, just like Abraham and Lot couldn't stay in the same area, now Jacob and Esau couldn't either. 
So Esau moves and he settles into this hill country that we called Edom, right? Well, who were his kids? Well, what we see in verses 9 through 14 is it lists the firstborn sons from each wife, Eliphaz and, and Reuel and Jeush, Jalem and, and Korah. Uh, the only real notable name in this whole section is Amalek, who's the father of the Amalekites, who will be uh, just this people group that God will wipe off the face of the earth. Uh, a lot of people will see, uh, you'll see this name kind of brought up as uh, places later on, like 1 Samuel 15, where Saul is called to just kill all of the Amalekites. Verses 15 through 43 really kind of deal with how is this family structured? See, what we see in verses 15 through 19, we see the chiefs of each clan, kind of the heads of each household, uh, these men who become more powerful. Verses 20 through 30 record kind of the history of of the people of Seir, uh, the Horites that were there that were dispossessed of the land. And verses 31 through 39, the historical kings of Edom. The chapter kind of closes out in verses 40 through 43, where the chiefs of Esau are listed by their dwelling place. At least a lot of interpreters kind of see that they kind of restate where each of these people are and how they were authoritative. And you kind of step away from this chapter and you say, well, what's this all about? Why is this recorded here for us? What, why did Moses see fit to increase Uh, the length of this book by recording for us chapter 36. And what we see really kind of rise to the surface is something about Esau that stands in contrast to the life of Jacob. See, Esau has abandoned the promises. Esau has abandoned the promises given to Abraham and to Isaac and ultimately to Jacob Let's try to get our heads around Esau's lineage just for a minute. See, Esau has abandoned those promises of his father Isaac. He no longer lives in Canaan. He's moved out of Canaan, the the promised land that was given by God to Abraham and promised to Isaac and eventually promised to Jacob as well. But he's moved out entirely. He has taken wives from foreign peoples. Now, to be fair, like in Genesis 27, we saw that there was very little blessing left for him, uh, but he still chose to kind of not exactly be faithful to the things that God had promised. See, the truth is this morning, like when we look at Esau, Esau's lineage, it might have been like really successful to him. It might have been significant to him. In his eyes, he sees sons that become more and more powerful and influential. He sees generations that are brought up through him. He sees a new land that he's kind of conquering. But Esau's lineage held no promise from God. There was to be nothing lasting here in Genesis 36 to the point that you and I don't recognize, what, 95% of these names? And if they do carry meaning, it's only because they became enemies of the nation of Israel. And so when I say that Esau's lineage is flat, I mean that there isn't anything that rises above the rest. There isn't any promise that in this genealogy, there's nothing that stands out for the Lord's purpose. But when we transition to chapter 37, we see that this stands in contrast to Jacob's line. In fact, like, just as we read these chapters, there's this phrase that keys us into this. See, chapter 36, verse 1, starts with, uh, these are the generations of, right? 
And then we see that same phrase used in Genesis 37, verse 2. These are the generations of Jacob. And so there's a contrast that is naturally happening between 36 and 37. Because there was one who stood out. There was one who was favored by his father in Genesis 37. And it's to that that we're going to turn in Genesis 37, verses 1 through 11. Read this with me. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. And these are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Jacob brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors, but when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. And he said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. And his brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is the dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying, in mind. See, these dreams are significant. We've seen a long history through the book of Genesis of dreams that were given by God, interpreted by those who received them as God's direction. Some of those have been just blatantly secular sources. Some of them have been uh, the promised ones. But here, uh, God speaks to Joseph in two different dreams. The first dream is about sheaves. Now, this week I heard someone describe this. uh, They pronounced it as shiv. A shiv is what you kill someone with in prison. A sheave is what you do when you bind together the harvest, right? I know that was a qualification you needed done this morning. But they're binding sheaves together in the field. They're gathering crops and binding them together. And so uh, the, the other's sheaves, the brother's sheaves, come and they kind of walk over. It's obviously a dream at this point, And they bow down to the sheaf of Joseph. Now, this is significant because later on, if we know the story of Joseph, harvest has a big deal to do with Joseph's story, right? Later on, Joseph will be put in a position to save up or store up seven years of plentiful uh, harvests to save the world. And so this dream is significant because it has to do with that harvest. But the second dream is also significant. It had to do with the heavens, Uh, This one comes with numbers, right? It's the sun and the moon and 11 stars all bowing down before Joseph. Now notice in this one, Joseph is not a sheaf or a star or anything else. It's just the heavens coming and bowing themselves before Joseph. And and Jacob is right to kind of interpret this as being uh, him 
his wife, whether that's Rachel or, or uh, another wife of his, we don't really know, and then his 11 brothers, including Benjamin. And they come and they bow down before him. Why is this significant? Well, Joseph, not only did he see that there was seven years of harvest, he knew how to manipulate the times. And so when the stars and the heavens, the sun and the moon are involved, uh, Joseph is given this kind of extra biblical or uh, sense about how to use the time, the years that are given to him so that he can glorify God and save his brothers. Strange that Jacob refers to the moon as Joseph's mother who passed away, but still the point remains the same. See, really in this section, in Genesis 37, 1 through 11, I just want to highlight two different movements that are happening. Uh, The first movement is Joseph's trajectory and blessing. And what happens in verse 2 is that he reports his brother's poor behavior to his father, right? And so he he reports these two brothers. Now notice who the brothers are. They're the sons of the concubines. They're not the sons of Leah or of Rachel, the blessed ones. They're the sons of the concubines. They're like the the ones on the outskirts of the family social order. Remember, Jacob gave us a, a sense of the social order when he lined everybody up to meet Esau. The least favored went first, right? So the sons of Bilhah or the sons of, of Zilpah went first, first, and then it was later on the other uh, concubine, and then it was Leah, and then it was Rachel, and then it was Jacob, or Joseph, excuse me, the, the most favored of all. And so Joseph, or Jacob's already invited us into this discussion about who his favorite is. And we see that in verse 3, that he is most loved by his father. And he's given this coat of, of many colors, this kind of robe that emphasizes his father's love and benevolence toward him. But it's not just that his father loves him. It's not just that he does what's right. In verses 5 through 7 and verse 9, he reports these dreams where he is exalted over his brothers. And some of us might be tempted to look at Genesis 37 and see Joseph as this kind of tattletaling goody-two-shoes. We, we might be tempted to read this through this Western lens that we have, but really what this passage is giving us is, is a sense of Joseph's faithfulness, that he's doing right in his father's eyes. He's uh, getting these dreams that are coming to him. He is the, the picture of God's blessing. In fact, I wonder if this passage is written in such a way to expose us in our rejection of righteousness around us as we sense that, oh, Joseph, this goody two-shoes, this uh, tattletale person, maybe we also are inclined to reject Joseph. But it goes on. So the first movement is this Joseph's trajectory toward blessing. But the second movement shows the increasing rejection of Joseph. As Joseph handles himself faithfully, he receives greater and greater hatred from his brothers. See, Joseph grows increasingly at odds with his family. In verse 2, he tells on the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah. It puts him at odds with a few of his brothers. In verse 4, Jacob's love for Joseph leaves him at odds with all of his brothers. That's what is highlighted here in, in, in Genesis 37. At the end of verse 3, I believe. Uh, excuse me. This is why you put things in your notes. Verse 4. When, he's, when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him 
and, and could not speak peaceably to him. All of his brothers kind of are united in their hatred of Joseph. And what happens then in verses 5 and in verse 8, they increase in their hatred. Uh, Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. And then look down at verse 8. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams. And so verse 8 tells us that they increase in their hatred. And it all culminates in verse 10 when when Joseph speaks the dream to his own father, Jacob. Jacob rebukes him. Even his father is skeptical of his dreams. See, we see this movement highlighted by uh, Moses' use of the word hated in verses 4 and 5 and 8. This will be the pattern of Joseph's life. The more faithful Joseph is, the more he suffers. If you know the story of Joseph, you know what happens next. See, next week we'll see that as he obeys his father, his brothers throw him in a well and then eventually sell him to these traders, these uh, traveling salesmen as they were. In chapter 39, when when Joseph finally reaches the house of his master Potiphar, it's the false accusation of Potiphar's wife that land him in prison. And when he is thrown in prison, he faithfully interprets the dreams of two of Pharaoh's uh, servants, and yet he is forgotten and left in prison. But eventually, God will use this suffering Because Joseph suffered, he ends up in the one spot in the world where he could save the very brothers that rejected him. And when they return to him, they bow, just like these dreams foretell. And God has uniquely suited him to provide for their need. See, God, in this massive twist is so aligning things that the one person on earth that could save Jacob's family is the rejected son of Jacob. God so aligns everything, uh, historically speaking, that he sets Jacob or Joseph up to be the savior of his people. In case you haven't figured it out, Joseph's life prefigures the life of Christ What we'll do for the remainder of our time in Genesis is we're going to hold up Joseph as a type of Christ and find there the glories of Jesus the Son. So this morning, what we see is that Joseph's life prefigures the life of Jesus in that both move from rejection to exaltation. Both Jesus and Joseph move from the rejection of their brothers to exaltation. I want to highlight a passage from Psalm 118 this morning. Uh, Psalm 118 is one of the most read scriptures in the New Testament. It's one of the most quoted scriptures of the New Testament. It's quoted some eight times by various authors in various places. And you'll recognize it even as we read it here in a second that this is really a, really a foundational thought um, for the early church. As they were familiar with this psalm, they leaned on its meaning to explain the sufferings of Jesus. Think about this for a second. In a Greek society where, where people valued wisdom or in a Hebrew society where people valued strength and ability, Jesus came as one suffering and dying. And so that 
suffering and dying needed to be explained. And so they would turn to passages like Psalm 118 to bring explanation. And here's what Psalm 118, 22, and 23 says. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. See, as we look back at this passage and we interpret it with the lens of seeing Jesus and glorifying Christ, things start to take shape. First, Jesus was rejected by men. He was the stone that the builders rejected. We, we quote this passage a lot where John 1, he came, Jesus came to his own and his own people did not receive him. When Jesus went to his hometown in Nazareth, in Luke chapter 4, he quotes from Isaiah 60. He reads the passage and he says, today this has been fulfilled in your hearing. But when they ask him to do miracles and perform the things that he had performed elsewhere and he refuses, they take him up to a cliff and they nearly throw him off. Jesus is rejected by his own people in Nazareth. And time and time again, as Jesus ministers, he's predicting his own death to his disciples, and he speaks of it as rejection. In Mark chapter 8, verse 31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. Luke 17, 25, but first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. In the three synoptic Gospels, Jesus quotes Psalm 118 time and time again, the stone which the builders rejected. But why? Why did these Jews, these brothers of Jesus, so to speak, why did they reject the Son of God? How had things gotten so bad that the nation of Israel, recipients of all God's blessings, put the the Son of God to death? And we get a key in Matthew chapter 27 when Pilate is is kind of testing and and speaking with the Jewish audience and speaking with Jesus. Uh, We get this sense in, in Matthew 27, when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release for you? Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Christ. Now listen to this, this statement about Pilate's knowledge. Verse 18, he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Envy. How does Moses describe the brother's response to Joseph in verse 11? They were jealous. John 5, Jesus is approaching the Pharisees, and he's saying, listen, you read the Scriptures, but you don't see me. You don't hear John the Baptist's testimony about me. You don't believe in my miracles. You read the Scriptures, and you miss them because you don't realize that they speak about me, and you do so because you want to receive glory. In verse 44, he says, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? See, we are jealous. And in our efforts, we want to self-exalt, push the glory of Christ down. See, here's the truth this morning, is that Jesus wasn't just rejected by those in Jerusalem in the first century. Jesus is rejected by us. And to this day, in the 21st century, men and women throughout the world are actively rejecting Christ. 
See, we are in some sense complicit with that audience that shouted out, crucify him. First Peter, verse, or chapter 3, verse 18, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. That is, if we are unrighteous, Jesus' death was caused by our sinfulness. I love music. And this theme works its way through so much of our song usage, so much of our hymnody. I love the song, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. Joe Day writes a song called, What Have We Done? He says, Oh my God, oh my Jesus. Jesus, Judas sold you for 30. I'd have done it for less. Oh my God, oh my Jesus, Peter denied you three times. I've denied you more. So this Jesus has been rejected, as Psalm 118 points out. Stone which the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. See, what that second phase is that Jesus has become the cornerstone. See, Jesus' life is not just important. It is foundational. The imagery that's used here, both in the Greek and in the Hebrew, as is quoted in the New Testament, it means the head of the corner. And my understanding was that this was an important piece of the building. First, it was the first stone that was to be laid. As you were to set out to build a building, you had to lay this cornerstone first. And the importance of that was that it could make the whole building square. If you didn't have a cornerstone that was right and perfect, uh, the whole building would be off. And so Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, that the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, but Jesus Christ himself is the chief cornerstone. Jesus is that foundational element that if he were not present, the building, the church, the temple that God is building us to could not have been built. And so what man rejected, God had designed. God saw fit for him, that's Christ, to be the firstborn from the dead. God saw fit for him to be the mediator between God and man. And when he had humbled himself as the servant, the Father exalted him and gave him the name above every other name, so that now no man threatens the exalted Jesus. There is no politician, no religious leader, no social media influencer, no celebrity, celebrity, no sports star, no business mogul, no one threatens the lordship of Jesus Christ this morning. No worldly philosophy, no train of thought, no social movement, no governmental system, no educational philosophy threatens the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Right now, Jesus is seated at the right hand of his Father, and his Father is actively making his enemies a footstool to his feet. And while the nations rage, Jesus laughs. Psalm 2, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. See, this this exaltation of Christ This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. See that? See how God takes the thing that's rejected and brings it to exaltation? 
And so the question to us this morning is, are you rejecting or are you marveling? Are you those who remain in this state of rejection of the Lordship of Christ? Or are you one of of his church that is continually marveling at the work that God has done? Can I just say this morning, I just want to be abundantly clear about this, that if you aren't marveling, you are rejecting. Jesus makes these statements like in Matthew 12. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. We often think we can be indifferent to Jesus. We think that we can be indifferent to the claims of of God and, and what the promise of the Scriptures hold out for us. We think that we can just engage on our own terms. I was just so pleased a couple weeks ago to hear a testimony of a brother in Christ that was uh, giving his testimony of how he came to faith. And he describes as he was uh, kind of uh, in the military at this point in time, he was in the Navy, and he's out in the ship, and a storm kind of comes in, and he's on this ship. And it wasn't life-threatening or anything else. He didn't describe that he was afraid for his life, but he realized in that moment that he had no control. There was no control that he had over this storm that was coming onto the Mediterranean Sea while he was there. We have this notion that we can uh, live our way and God can leave us alone. We have this sense that we can live independently of God. And I just have to tell you this morning that's not true. Jesus makes these claims that whoever's not with me is against me. And if you're here and you're deceived by this notion that you can be independent of God and God can do his thing and you can do yours, I'm here to tell you that's not true. See, rejecting Jesus, for those of us who are here, we're participating in church life, rejecting Jesus can often look very religious as well. Remember, it was religious authorities that ultimately rejected Jesus the first time. It was people from the religious community that that put Jesus... uh, to trial and ultimately put him to death. There's also a way for us to to marvel at God's goodness that might also look secular. So there's there's people out there who uh, look religious but aren't really Christian, and there's people who are Christian who might not look very religious. See, the point is that God has increasingly been pushing things for us to see it as an attitude of the heart before our Lord and and that God investigates us and sees our sinfulness and we have to come to this place where we either marvel or reject. So Christian, are you here this morning? Do you marvel at God's grace in Christ? See, the message of the gospel isn't just for the lost this morning. We tend to think that sometimes, don't we? That we share the gospel as a means for someone who doesn't know Jesus to come into right relationship with God. But the truth is that you and I who have been seasoned Christians still need to hear of God's goodness at the cross. We, We still need to marvel at the person of Christ. The message of the gospel is to be marveled at by believers. It's to be reflected upon. It is to be the empowerment for righteous living as we see so many times in the New Testament. We are called to to review the cross, to see our sinfulness, 
and find salve for our guilt, but also find empowerment for future righteousness and living. Amen? So this morning, I, I, I just want to ask that question. That's basically the sum total of our application this morning. Are you marveling at the goodness of God in Christ? I wonder sometimes if, if we have just experienced this kind of gospel boredom. Can I be the first to confess that there's times where I don't want to delight in the gospel? If we don't have a culture where we can admit that, we, we don't have honesty. There's times where we just we unpack the same scripture verse. You've heard John 3.16 like literally a million times in your life. But shouldn't it still be some way profound to us? I want to set out some rhythms for us that we might step into this pattern of marveling at the exaltation of Christ in the gospel. Marveling at at how God has exalted the person of Jesus. I'm going to give you three things. First, it's an encouragement to read the gospel. Secondly, an encouragement to speak the gospel. And third, an encouragement to hear the gospel. And I wonder if we might just even, uh, as we enter into these rhythms, just find ourselves delighting. You know, one of my concerns right now is we've done nine months, nine months of kind of isolation and difficulty, and uh, a lot of us are just burdened. As I talk, as I reflect on my own life, as I talk with others around us, we just sense that people are weary. We are just weary with the status of our life. And I just want to encourage you that I think reflecting on God's goodness in the gospel can help us find fresh wind for our sails. Let's talk about reading the gospel. Can I just encourage you to read the scriptures? If you're new, a new Christian and, and you're young in your faith, uh, you might want to start with a gospel. Start with the gospel of John. Uh, read through that. Just understand who the person of Jesus is. If you're a a bit more seasoned as a believer, I would encourage you to to pick up the epistles. Romans and Galatians specifically will just unpack the beauty of the gospel. If you're more seasoned, if you've been a believer for a long time, you can pick up Old Testament books like Hosea or a New Testament book like the book of Hebrews and try to see the person of Christ in those books. Uh, Scripture reading is, is a defining thing for the life of the believer, and you will not learn rhythms of delighting and marveling in Christ outside of the scriptures themselves. So read. Second thing is read good books. Uh, right now we're, um, through our growth modules, reading John Stott's The Cross of Christ. It's, it's a thick read, but it's really good. Uh, it's been really helpful for me, even as we've gotten into the initial chapters, but a really good book. If you're a little... Uh, Lighter in your read, I'll tell you, Milton Milton Vincent has done us a great grace by writing this book called A Gospel Primer for Christians, and it orients us to 31 or 32 different sayings that are true of the gospel that bear adequate uh, truth for our our time to reflect upon. So we want to read the gospel. We want to speak the gospel. (laughs) Man. Can I just encourage you to gather with friends who who know God's word and and want to lead you to rich faith in Christ? I I just can't advocate that enough. Can I even encourage you to avoid those people who cause you to be anxious and overwhelmed? 
not to avoid them, but to just not spend the majority of your time with them. Look and seek out relationships that encourage you in your faith. Uh, join a community group. Uh, you know, gather arms. Uh, grab coffee with a, a Christian from Gospel Community. Uh, you know, just sit down and invest time in those people that will encourage you in Christ. Second thing is to engage with non-Christians. Just engage with unbelievers. And intentionally, with the purpose of the gospel, uh, unpack the glories of Jesus with them. Uh, and join a, join a book club and speak the truth of the gospel while you're at the book club. Go to the gym and strike up random conversations with people at the gym. They can't breathe anyway. They're not going to talk back to you. And so we can, we can speak the gospel with Christians. We can speak the gospel with non-Christians. We can speak the gospel in prayer. We can thank God for his work in Christ. We can pray gospel-rooted prayers for others. Read the prayers of Paul sometimes, specifically in places like 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 or in the book of Romans. At the outsets of all of Paul's epistles, he prays or tells us how he prays for the recipients of those letters, and they are rich gospel reflections. Pray the gospel for others. Pray the gospel for your family, for yourselves. Uh, Speak the gospel in prayer to the Lord. So we read the gospel, we speak the gospel, hear the gospel. Put down uh, the sources of media, the political pundits that are constantly speaking to you and, and dragging your mind to other places that aren't rich in faith in Christ. Put away the podcast that you have to listen to that's, uh, that just is filled with all kinds of anxiety and, and other things for you. And take up listening to godly men exposit the Scriptures. Uh, John Piper, Tim Keller, Mark Dever, Ligon Duncan, David Platt, H.B. Charles, these guys fa- faithfully exposit the Scriptures. They faithfully lead us to the well of the Gospel. Come here. I know the preaching's not awesome, but we preach Christ. Listen to dead saints. You know, there's something to be said about someone who's died in faithfulness to the gospel. Martin Lloyd-Jones, Edmund Clowney. These men died holding on to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen to dead saints. See, we want to read the gospel. We want to speak the gospel. We want to hear the gospel because it leads us to marvel at the exalted Christ who sits in heaven today. It crowds out all of the other things that press upon our minds and our souls, that that press on us, and it leads us to reflect on God's goodness in Jesus. Isn't that what we need? Don't we need some transcendent narrative that rises above Capitol Hill riots and rises above uh, the political discourse and rises above all of these situations? We need to see the lordship of Jesus, that he sits on his throne now, that he's working all of human history to his end. Upon his return, he will establish his kingdom. With that in mind, let's pray to that end. Lord, make us a people of the gospel Shape us and form us according to your design and your desire. Lord, we see how you have exalted Jesus from the rejection of his brothers, and you have exalted him, giving him the name above every name. And Father, we wait patiently for our exaltation. For that time, will you will raise us with finality. Fill our hearts with the truth of Jesus' death on our behalf. 
of his powerful resurrection, of his presence with us in the Spirit, and allow us to be faithful to you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.